Sun Film Podcast. I am Drew Tappendale, and with me are Scott Morris. Hello. And Craig Eastman. Hiya. The topic of this episode will be the film career of one Mr. Clint Eastwood, and we will be aiming to look at his progression from actor to director, and how he and his films have changed, and how successfully he has managed to transition to direction, including the rather difficult task of directing himself. While we are all long-term fans of old Clint, there is a particular reason we are doing this podcast right now. <laughs> and that's because of a dream that Craig had that rather upset him. <laughs> I woke up inconsolable. Yes, um, exactly the word. It's <laughs> few, few things make me anxious in life, but one of those things is the realisation that Clint Eastwood is now 85 years old. And that statistically speaking, uh, we are all incredibly likely to outlive him. Um, and I, I woke up a couple of weeks ago, I suppose, in a blind panic because I had a dream that Clint Eastwood uh, had died, and for a good sort of, for, for a good couple of minutes anyway, whilst I, I sort of came to, um, I was inconsolable, and <laughs> even for sort of half an hour after that, I was kind of feeling a bit down about it, even because it kind of brought about the realization, and and I think um, it's appropriate that if you're going to have a, a retrospective of someone's career, let's let's do it now. While the man's still alive. Yes, exactly. That's as Craig mentions, he is an elderly chap, but to make sure that we praise the man while he's alive and to console Craig, we welcome you to Fudson Films Clint Isn't Deed special. <laughs> Can I just point out this phase as well? I'd like to point out the fact that from from my understanding of the man's physical constitution, Clint Eastwood is probably in better general health than I am. <laughs> even though he's got almost fifty years on me. Let, let's let's embrace the man's body of work and celebrate him now while he's still here instead of waiting for the inevitable. Okay, so we thought it would be best to begin with where Clint Eastwood really made his name. It came to the attention of most people, and that was with his early westerns. Most notably, I think, with his work with Sergio Leone in the Dollars trilogy. Yeah, I mean, of course, he started with the, the TV show Rawhide, which, mm. to be honest, apart from a few clips here and there, I've not really seen any of. That was a little before my time. However, it was, by most reports, a fairly traditional Western tale of uh, drovers. The Sergio Leone stuff, of course, is uh, quite a bit different from that. I've always found it a shame that, in general, I don't find Westerns more interesting, because it's got this great scope for historical examination, certainly better than almost any other kind of uh, period piece. But some of the early examples of the genre were not made too long after the period that they depict, which does give you a great chance to examine the myth-building and then the eventual deconstruction of that. So many of those early westerns, and much of Rawhide, was based on a fairly simplistic black hat, white hat moralising. It's more acceptable than the other tropes that it went around, which is basically othering Native Americans as wild savages, only fit for slaughter. But in many ways, early westerns are an attempt at eulogising this brutality and the shaky grasp of law the USA spread westward held. But Leone's westerns remain notable in large part because he brought a more European perspective to this myth-building, and not just in terms of his cast. The Italians are, I suppose, uniquely positioned to comment on empire-building and the subsequent decay, and that translates through into a somewhat more nuanced, or at least much less starkly defined, morality of Fistful of Dollars, for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'd 
picked uh, Fistful as a representative sample, largely because it's the first one. As far as Clint's concerned, that's accurate. He plays the mysterious, unruffled, wisecracking uh, outsider character, and that's something that he will draw on again throughout his career. For Leone, I suppose it's a bit of a false reading. Of course, Fistful of Dollars is great, but that's because it's a blatant reshred of Jimbo. <laughs> that said, the positives in Fistful uh, do carry through to all the rest of the films. Eastwood has a restrained, cucumber-cool performance in all of the series. Uh, it became rightly iconic, almost as iconic as Ennio Morricone's uh, trilogy of classic scores, and Spain does a very good impersonation of Mexico. <laughs> Leone brings a very different eye to the genre, with a wildly effective mix of wide shots and extreme close-ups that do a great job of building drama and conveying the setting. So watching all these through again recently, it's uh, remarkable how well they've held up. They have that element of grit, this element of somewhat deconstructing the, the myth of the Western ethos. It's something that you'll see going more and more into the Western reality. The interesting thing about Westerns, is, of course, is that they have changed over time. Now you very rarely see something as simplistic as the John Wayne films of yesterday. Now they tend to be a bit more brutal and a bit more, for want of a better term, realistic. wouldn't say that any of these Leone films are particularly realistic, but they are incredibly enjoyable. Uh, if amazingly well paced they look beautiful basically there's not really much that you'd want to change in them even years after the fact they all held up incredibly well for Clint Eastwood of course he is rightly iconic in it it's a very great role for him and it's a particularly effective role for him to kind of start off his film career the knock I guess I read one quote that's supposedly from Leone saying that at this point in his career Eastwood had two expressions with hat and without (laughs) (laughs) which I think he's being a little harsh yeah well I was going to say there I mean, I think the Leone westerns are where Clint Eastwood really sort of got his trademark, his first displayed at least his trademark gruffness and his mm. stares. And I always thought that it would have been so easy for him to be sort of the gruff stary man. But I think he's, even though he, like in most films he's gruff stary man, he's a different gruff stary man. His his gruff stariness is, is versatile. Yes. There's a nuance to his gruff stariness. There's an, an economy to those films and Leone's style that I think Eastwood's sort of persona at that point probably played into. That's how I would... Uh, the, I think they meshed quite well. I think that's how I'd, I'd, uh, I'd describe it. Yeah, certainly a, a trio of very minimal performances. Uh, there's not much overblown uh, histrionics or anything like that. So, in fact, there's, there's very little spoken dialogue in it at all. There's just lots of staring and... Uh, mm-hmm. And, East, and Eastwood has one of cinema's greatest staring faces. Yeah. If I edited together, I, I feel like doing a supercut of <laughs> um, just every scene where Clint Eastwood is basically standing silently, chewing on a cheroot or something. That's most just, of the just, film. <laughs> yeah, just staring someone out. And I would watch that on loop until the day I die. Even at, I mean, what age was he then? Uh, his 30s. He was in his mid-30s or something like that, right? Even at, even at that age, he had a, he had a face that was that was lived in, and that mm. kind of just a certain gravitas that that few few people have just in just in terms of their physical presence on on screen. Few people have that presence just in terms of here's my image on celluloid, you know, drink, drink it in. Mm. He's he's one of the few people who has that kind of physical um, and photogenic presence. Even now, I can think of very few actors who have had that, and that's absolutely one of you know, especially in those early films, absolutely one of his uh, one of his trump cards. Not to yeah. say that that's his stock in trade, um, but it certainly served him well. Yeah, just I suppose if we're covering the trilogy, there's certainly not one of them that I wouldn't wholeheartedly recommend. Fistful of Dollars, of course, as I said, because it is based so heavily on Yojimbo, it's, it's got a solid base to build from, and I think it does a very good job of that. A few dollars more, 
the second one perhaps gets a little bit lost in the shuffle, but I think that's a little unfair. Again, another iconic score. Uh, the support from um, Lee Van Cleef is, is also mm. pretty well effective yes. too. It uh, gives another a welcome sort of second access for the films to kind of pivot around and I think it will uh, provides a, a welcome change up to the formula. They're all basically the same tales of outsiders uh, going about their business and they're all great. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly is probably the best. Another set of great performances for the three sort of central characters to bounce off as well as having the same positives that all the rest of the series yeah. had they all look great they all sound great yeah and there's a real progression the film is too in terms of sort of their depth and their story a fistful of dollars is fairly minimal in that regard then the story just gets a richer story for a few dollars more than the good the bad and the ugly is a very very ambitious one it's much longer it has a more characters more story but it's both the the actor improving there and the director becoming more confident as well. I mean, obviously these weren't Leone's first films, but you see him improving his craft as it goes along. Yeah, something that Eastwood will have again throughout his career, but these films were just panned critically for the most part when they came out. And it's looking back, it's really it's baffling to think how you could have underestimated these so much. They were they were treated as parodies. They were basically they were treated as being too violent. They were essentially ignored, which is very strange in retrospect, given that they they clearly are very very good yeah, films. Yes, I mean it's, if you look at the genre of westerns as a whole, and like I think well, Sergio Leone is clearly the master of it. It's so strange mm. that they were dismissed then. Like, yes, I know very much that they were derided as being too violent because all of that murdering of Indians, that, that was wholly yeah. um, non-violent, wasn't it? Yeah, but that was a lovable propaganda. <laughs> that is, is interesting the way that films are used as a kind of propaganda, these sort of things. I think that is part of the whole mythos of the Western. It was used to, uh, the films were being used to justify the actions of oh, yeah. recent history, you know, very recently, in the start of the East. And yeah, well, taken over at- Sort of the early John Ford stuff, the 1930s, that's just a couple of decades after this stuff was still going on. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. But then somebody comes along and does something different, and like, oh no, they're a dirty foreigner. Yeah. And got, you can good. see the same sort of parallel as, uh, like any of these traumatic things, it does take a, a while for cinema to kind of catch up and be able to do more nuanced representations of it. This is why I think the spaghetti westerns are so well remembered because it was the start of the western genre starting to get a modicum of self-reflection and mm-hmm. a bit of historical perspective that is, was really lacking before then. And you'll see the same kind of things when you see the films made after the Second World War, for example. Uh, they start off being, you know, boys' own comic book adventures <laughs> about gunning down evil Nazis, and yeah, it was only it. over time. You know, it takes a long time for you to get to downfall. So. <laughs> 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 Well, yep, uh, they're all very heartily recommended, and I think you can't really go wrong with any of them. Any of Leone's westerns are great. Yeah, Leone's westerns. Okay, so that's really where Clint Eastwood made his name quite trademark look about him too. So we're going to jump forward quite a bit in time to another series of films that are probably as iconic for Clint Eastwood, if not more so, and that's as a certain Inspector Harry Callahan of the San Francisco Police Department. Yeah, I think these two franchises, for me at least, are certainly the elephants in the room, so it's good to get them out of the way first. Mm. Uh, in a lot of ways, Dirty Harry is basically taking the same character and moving him forward in time, putting <laughs> him in a suit and giving him a gun. Harry's, uh, of course, the, the by this point, so iconic, hard-boiled cop that I don't really think there's any point given a lot of detail on how it goes. Uh, oh, he's the, he's the prototypical maverick, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's someone who does not like what City Hall is doing and is happy to go his own way. I mean, the interesting thing about the first one is that that really, really does... Not only is that sort of the central tenant of his character, but it does come back to bite him on the ass. One of the more interesting things about this is uh, Harry goes on the trail of a, a serial killer. Is He's cutting corners. He is doing the whole 
right-wing arguments for police brutality and is you know where the ends justify the means the whole sort of ticking time bomb kind of thing where he's happy to beat information out of people and it turns out you can't do that and that's why the killer is wound up released to perform the kind of final act of the movie which is a kind of interesting little not exactly twist but certainly a an interesting development which i don't think you'd seen in a great many other things no and something Uh, which a lot of people gloss over when they um when they cite this as the great right-wing movie and the sort of uh, the beginning of that persona, because obviously Eastwood himself is is uh, is a flag waving Republican, right? Yeah, and uh, something of a, a masthead for 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 the right wing in certain ways. And Dirty Harry would, would certainly seem to be the keystone character for that movement. Few few people actually bother to stop and and contemplate the fact that, as as you point out, with, within the film itself, it's it's highlighted that that's something that you can't get away with. The way it's presented, although. It is not particularly taking sides. I think it does kind of lend itself towards the side of being that, you know, Harry should be allowed to do rampages way throughout San Francisco. Uh, I think wisely, it's never really returned to for the rest of the series, apart from it kind of becoming a almost to the point of self-parody that anywhere this man goes, trouble and gunshots will follow. But it's never sort of brought up again and again a political context for the most part, and that might be a good a good idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> But certainly as, as a film, though, the first Dirty Harry is rightly a blueprint for many other people to start taking their examples from. It's got the amazingly memorable central character in Dirty Harry. He dirty, of course, because he's doing the jobs no one else wants. He acts the way that a lot of cops, I think, would like to be able to act. Mm. But uh, uh, certainly in the context of it being a film and not actual reality, it's fun to watch, although I don't think I'd want that happening in, in real life. That said, it's, it is, of course, fun to watch. There's a memorable uh, central villain with the uh, Scorpio Killer, who's mm-hmm. sort of playing somewhat over the top, but yeah, a very effective and memorable villain, who's certainly not, not lacking on the evil plans. It makes for a, a really entertaining watch as we try and track down this ne'er-do-well. And yeah, it just generally works very well and it holds up incredibly well. Another great soundtrack, Lalo Schifrin inventing acid jazz about 20 years before it actually existed, so <laughs> another... Tremendous set of theme music from him. And yes, it's very pacey, it's very punchy. It has, of course, the the memorable handgun. And it's just a terrific movie. It's still enjoyable to this day. The same can't be said for most of the rest of the franchise. The next one in the series, Magnum Force Link, still holds up pretty well. Magnum Force is okay. Yeah, Yeah. although, I mean, there are warning signs in Magnum Force that things are not going to go all that well because in the opening credits of Magnum Force, they start using his catchphrase and put it up on screens. So that, that's quite worrying when a film series starts going for that sort of thing so early mm. on. Yeah. yeah. I guess, for me, the most interesting thing about Magnum Force is that it's a series, uh, he, he's going up against a number of cops who are doing the thing that you could accuse Dirty Harry of doing in the first one, but yeah. of course they were taking it too far, and he's he's ready to uphold the law against the policemen who are doing that, which is a, an interesting kind of moral twist based on the first one, I think. It's interesting that they decided, to, I mean, because there are probably any number of avenues that uh, a sequel this could have gone down, but for them to actually hold the mirror up to the character and say, "Well, look, what's you know, what's the difference between you and these guys? Let's 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 discuss that a little bit deeper, yeah. even, even if the answers aren't all that greatly well no. considered." <laughs> um, is is still at least a sort of a, a vaguely different direction, certainly at that point in time for a, for a sequel to have gone in. Yeah. It's not it's not the least interesting thing that they could have done. Yeah, and again, I think for most of the rest of it, the other elements of the film kind of back it up as well. It's still you know punchy and pacey. Clint Eastwood is still 
basically playing the same character all of them you won't find a lot of progression of his character <laughs> in the Dirty Harry films oh. it's not the, not the avenue for them but he does play it incredibly well so it's still enjoyable on those bases so yeah Magnum Force is still worth a watch the other ones you can I was going to say you can take them or leave them but I think in most instances you're better off <laughs> you just can, leaving you them and leave them uh, the De- Deadpool's almost the, which was the last the fifth and last Dirty Harry film um, and the only one of the 80s I think is almost worth a look in just as a just as a show. It's one of those films. It's one of those films that the guys from How Did This Get Made might want to look at at some point because Black actually, it's just ins- yeah, it's it's just a little bit insane. I think it is worth watching just so you can see a very early Jim Carrey performance mm-hmm. and also a performance where he dies, which I think is probably the highlight of the film for me. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Along with his incredibly silly dance that he's doing in Liam Neeson's uh, <laughs> horror movie set, ludicrous. Yeah, so the Deadpool was a horrible way to round things up. But the Enforcer was a third in the series. It's not much better. It does have one positive, I guess. It does have a fairly strong female lead character, which mm. is for a franchise that is a bit of a sausage fest, quite a positive. Uh, unfortunately, it's not really backed up with much of a story. He's going up against a, a terrorist force, a little paramilitary force, which doesn't seem to have any particular goal in mind. It's more of a the terrorists in the Hans Gruber sense of the word, where they're really just mm. after money. There was possibly a way you could have explored that, but it kind of just gets a bit bored with it and tries mm. to go, well, let's kidnap the mayor and have a shootout, and it ends in a sort of wet fart of a, a way in Alcatraz, <laughs> and it, just, it all seems... It's certainly, it all seems it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly not that it's got a great feminist agenda. When you say it's, yeah, it's interesting and in that it's got this strong female lead, it's not that it was a wonderfully progressive piece of women's lib um, or anything. It's still very much the case that, oh, you know, by the end of the film, he has grudgingly accepted that this broad might actually be reasonably good at her job. It's not that she's treated as an equal yeah. from the start or there's any acknowledgement <laughs> that she should be a good police officer to begin yeah. with. I, I suppose one of the, not sure if at this point it's a positive or negative about the film, but um, Eastwood, the initial scripts, drafts of this apparently had much more character interaction and much more character development for Dirty Harry and uh, Tank well, Daly's character. With her. Uh, no, apparently there was you know some actual emotions on display, but uh, Eastwood kiboshed that on the basis that it was it was getting in the way of the action, which he felt was what people were going to see the franchise for. Mm. And while that's maybe you know disappointing from a, a sort of general film quality perspective, I suppose you can't actually argue with the man in terms of knowing which side his bread's buttered. These films were still very successful on the basis that they were formula cop dramas that did tremendous box office so he, he knew commercially what the right decision was but I think in terms of the actual quality of the film I think that was a, a somewhat of a misstep mm. I suppose we'll round out the franchise with Sudden Impact the 1983 vehicle which basically doesn't feel like a Dirty Harry film at all I believe that was mm. there was at least some conceptualising of this being a trilogy of films but this fourth one is basically just bolted on it feels like it's a it could be a completely different script entirely, uh, barring like the obligatory shootouts at the start uh, just to establish that, yes, Dirty Harry still has a gun and will shoot people with it. But it kind of deals with uh, Harry being exiled off to a smaller California town to investigate a murder and gets involved in a, a rape victim getting in uh, revenge on those who raped her from some time ago. And it kind of doesn't really play anything like a Dirty Harry film. It's not a bad film. It's, but it feels very much like Dirty Harry guest starring in another script for some reason, and that's okay. It probably hangs together better as a film than the Enforcer did, but it's still largely forgettable. Is Sudden Impact the one that is basically there to showcase the the Magnum Auto Mag? Yes, yes. <laughs> 
that that is probably the, the single most memorable thing in the film. Uh, although it never actually gets shot because there was there, no blanks existed for those cartridges at the time. So anything but shot is actually it's a different bottle of gun. Oh, sorry, it was just that thing of at this point the franchise had just become such um, such a copy and paste, and uh, how you know sort of incremental incremental steps in in um, how ludicrous they could be and we need we need a new catchphrase for this one and and okay what's what's he going to kill the bad guys with now we can't we can't just fall back on the old 44 magnum anymore um, and of yeah. course that the very notion of that climbs in a rocket and goes to the moon for the last <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for the deadpool um when when he uh, when he offs Liam Neeson with a, <laughs> with a harpoon gun yeah. The size so of a, the size of an outhouse. Not to spoil the ending, of course, but it's not actually Liam Neeson in that one. It's uh, oh, no, the guy sorry. pretending to be Liam Neeson. That's right. Yes, yes. sorry. Of course, <laughs> and pretending to do Liam Neeson's terrible accent at the same time. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's disappointing that the franchise sort of fell, you know, disappeared down the toilet um, at, at this point because there are certainly there are certainly themes uh, there that could have been explored a little bit more in depth and, and even just with the. I guess with the material they had, something more interesting could have been done with it. Was um was Deadpool one of his directorial efforts? No, it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't. No, and one can only imagine the reason for him accepting to do that was a large dumper truck full of money pulled <laughs> up outside his home one time. Yes. And discharged into it. I mean, in terms of, if you want to talk about his progression, then I suppose you start off with you know the original Dirty Harry being, you know, a fairly good example of him in a film. It's still relatively early in his career, and he does really well in it. Um, but then he does the same thing again and again. So by the time you get through to Deadpool, which was what eighty eight, it's like you know he's he could be doing better than this. Uh, I think it's uh, it shows a bit of sort of mid career stagnation. I think in terms of in this, uh, the Dirty Harry franchise, it's it starts off very well. It starts off positive, but all those positives mm. are gradually eroded over time. And well, they- the eighties in general. By the time we get to those last two films, the eighties in general were, let's say, a bit, a bit of a vacuum for him. Probably his probably his weakest decade. But let's not forget that in the same year as he he brought us Dirty Harry, he also gave us Play Misty for Me. Yes, which we said we would cover um, largely because if you are going to show a progression of someone's career, it's useful to show absolute zero, <laughs> which is more or less Play Misty for Me. Um, now, it is not the worst film in the world, and I'm surprised to see, I didn't notice until just earlier today when I was doing some bit of research, that it's actually still quite well regarded, so mm-hmm. Ebert gave it 4 out of 4. I, have, I apparently was watching a different film, uh, because Play Misty for me, while it's by no means terrible, it's a, a series of decisions, all of which are wrong. <laughs> uh, the basic story is Clint Eastwood's playing a DJ, and a fan phones up to request Misty being played for her uh, many occasions. She becomes an obsessed character. She kind of seeks him out. They have a romantic entwangling, but it turns out that she's a bit of a crazy stalker type and Just uh, winds up going going overboard and eventually threatening uh, Eastwood's other kind of long-term, on-again, off-again girlfriend. I think the central problem that makes this film just outright strange to watch is that it seems like Eastwood went back to his default character. It was like, I'm going to do a tough outsider character wisecracking all these kind of things you know that works if you're a lone gunman it works if you're a cop on the edge doesn't work if you're a dj no. uh, 
so an easy the, listening DJ at that too. There's nothing edgy about the music he played or anything. No, no. You have this sort of strange choice for the, the performance of the central character. And when you combine that with the very overblown histrionic performances that you get from Jessica Walter, it just doesn't kind of match up because you're never really going to feel any sort of threat from her to him because he's clearly Dirty Harry, you know, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't it doesn't kind of match up particularly well. It's just a bit amateurish in a great many respects. It feels like Eastwood's uh, just fallen back to type. I think if he'd not been directing himself here, he might have had someone to, you know, give him a, a signaling board to sort of change the direction on the character. Yeah, I, think, I think he might have reined Jessica Walters in a bit from going sort of wildly overboard. And uh, in his defence though, um, and it's why it's worth mentioning Playboy Steve, I mean, it's a fairly unremarkable film, if technically reasonably competent, I would guess, is that it is his first feature as a director, but it's something I think has come up again in his other career too, is that in the rest of his career, sometimes he doesn't really seem to, to want to focus on himself that much. Mm. But in this case, he also hasn't focused on everybody else because that woman's chewing the scenery. And yes, as you said, he's he's playing the character all wrong. He's Basically, he's Dirty Harry as a DJ, and that just doesn't make any sense at all. And there's so many other smaller bad decisions all the way throughout it, like the way some of it's cut. He's having a conversation with his uh, Donna Mills' character, and it's a three-minute, maybe five-minute conversation, something like that. But that is then cut over footage of an entire day's worth of them sort of wandering about and, you know, fooling around on the beach and these kind of things and it's just very strangely done it's like they've said one sentence in the morning and two sentences in the afternoon mm. and another three sentences in the evening as though so that was their one conversation they were just quiet in between all that it's just weird yeah I think you've and, got to see that as him kind of just playing with all the tools he had with him and beginning to learn his craft but it, mm. it doesn't make um, for a good viewing experience typically, I mean that's that's fine, but I mean that's why film school exists yes. and why people don't don't release them into the cinema multiplexes. Also, it's it's rather effectively underwhelmed by trying to build tension by playing a, a song called "Dirty Boogie" by Gator Creek as that sort of main tension driving uh, recurring theme. And I invite anyone to go and check that out on YouTube if you've not not heard of Gator Creek's "Dirty Boogie" and try and imagine if you can. If you can, anything you know, <laughs> less tension building than this. <laughs> what a choice. It's, it's interesting for a, first, for a first directorial effort because bear in mind that, I mean, although his career started in B-movies, I mean, still, he's, he's been working with directors for 16 years by this point. So you'd think that you'd think he would have, he would have picked up some, some fairly solid tricks of the trade along the way. Having said that, it's been something like 20 years since I last saw this movie, so I'm not best placed to comment on it. I, I remember kind of liking it, but whether or not that's because my critical faculties were at a point where I could um, analyse it properly is, is another thing. But I mean, As I say, you, you will find worse films in the world, and possibly even worse films that Eastwood's been in. However, it's, it's not really worth digging out. Uh, is it anything other than a historical curiosity? And the worst, or rather the best thing I can say about it is that it's not awful. But as Scott says, I wouldn't bother seeking it out. And you're saying, Craig, too, that he's been around all these other directors and you think he'd have learned something. Mm. I think it might be something akin to, like, the, the teenage rebellion thing of, like, well, no, I know better. I'm going to do things my own way. Because you see so in his later Here's career... Here's my that, badge, damn it. <laughs> you see very much in his later career that clearly learned from some of the great directors he worked with because... Mm. There's definite similarities in style, and you, you can see their yeah. influence in his work. Whereas for Play Misty, for me, it being his first film, I think it was like, yes, I'm going to do this my way. 
And I think he had enough um, savvy to, to look at it and go, yeah, maybe not so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of his career does seem to be defined by him looking for respect from critics, from audiences, everything like that. And it does seem that that has been a... Certainly in his early career was a fairly central driving force to him. He always felt he was kind of hard done by not getting the breaks he deserved. Mm. But I think in retrospect, a lot of it is justified why he wasn't actually getting the respect that he deserves. I mean, there's certainly nothing in Playmacy for me that would immediately yeah. mark him out as a, a fantastic director. And he does kind of go back... He did spend a lot of time going back to the same characters and not really developing his craft, you there's could a, argue. There's a lot of evidence there. I mean, let's say on, on his directorial uh, resume of certainly him having serious serious pretensions in uh, in that field. But then it's... it's it's surprising, actually, when you look back and you consider that sort of a third of his career has been comprised of directing. Yeah. That actually quite how many sort of utterly throwaway, you know, clearly for the paycheck and a pot boilers are in there that yeah. they don't even be serving, uh, seem to be serving as, you know, taking, look, I'm going to take this directing gig sort of to try and try and noodle away at some, developing some sort of style of my own. It, it veers wildly and delivers really, really mixed results. Yes. Which <laughs> sounds like a lead into the next film. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. sounds like a lead into the next film. It may well be. 1982's Firefox, about which I don't have a, a great deal to, to say. I mean, it kind of, if you look back at his, his directorial career, starting with Play Misty for Me in 1971, um, High Plains Drifter, uh, 73, not a terrible movie, and then you hop into um, a film that we're going <laughs> to... A film we're going to be discussing fairly soon on, a, I think, a commentary podcast, um, The Iger Sanction, um, in 1975, which is bafflingly out there in, in terms of style and content and intent. And it, it's kind of like the odd and even numbered Star Trek films. If you go if you go through his his career as director, there's like, okay, here's one where I clearly had I clearly had my eyes on on some sort of statuette. Um, followed by one where apparently I seem to have been taking a great deal of acid or something that week. I'd, I don't know. Firefox 1982 kind of, yeah, kind of sums up nicely the the 80s for him, if you think about it in terms of those last couple of Dirty Harry films and then this being where he was at both as actor and director. Utterly, utterly disposable pot boiler. Completely unremarkable. Nothing... Uh, memorable at all really in terms of characterization. I mean a, a great concept based on the novel of the same name and actually based on the true life events of uh, uh, well loosely based um, <laughs> yeah, <a steady laughs> true life events of or let's say inspired by the story of the Russian uh, MiG pilot who had defected yeah. to Japan although <laughs> Russian pilots and MiGs is pretty much where, where the similarity <laughs> ends. Yes, I'm and, sure there was a lot of Newly controlled interfaces with a jet fighter in in the real story, right? Ab- absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we'll get on to the lack of sophistication around that stuff in a minute. But I mean, on the face of it, actually, an interesting plot: the Russian military have developed um, a new MiG fighter craft, the Thirty Five, I think, which, amongst other things, can travel at Mach six, can outfly radar signatures. So, therefore, for all intents and purposes, is in- invisible to radar, is entirely nuclear capable, and has. The ace up its sleeve of a thought-controlled weapon system, um, which basically <laughs> removes. If not dealt that ace. It was, it was a much better film. <laughs> which, as far as I can tell, simply removes the, the necessity for a pilot to press a button. So a great technological <laughs> yeah. leap 
for all of the R&D cost that it's implied was pumped into this by the Soviets. Obviously, obviously, removing the need to press a button is something that the US military simply cannot allow <laughs> the Soviets to have in the midst of the Cold War. If anyone's not going to press a button, it'll be us, damn it. Um, and, and so I don't want them not pressing a button better than we can not press a button. <laughs> Find find us our best Vietnam War pilot. Um, so yeah, uh, Eastwood Eastwood uh, stars as the former Vietnam veteran, a U.S. Air Force pilot who's called back into service, not just to fly this plane, but actually to infiltrate the test facility where this prototype is being housed uh, and exfiltrate it from. I think I can't. Is it is it Siberia? I can't remember. <laughs> it didn't seem all that important at the time. <laughs> It certainly doesn't seem important now. Yeah, that's that's basically that's basically. I'm pretty sure that was his tagline. It, it didn't seem important now. It's not important now. <laughs> <laughs> you you've never been so terrified by someone not pressing a button. Um, yeah, basically a, a, a very standard structure, a film of three acts, convincing act one, convincing uh, convincing Eastwood to get back in the game, act two infiltrating the facility and then act three which is him trying to uh, trying to get the plane back to United States soil all the while being pursued by another Firefox prototype which is a bit of an inconvenience for him really <laughs> to find out there's another pilot with the capability to not press a button um, as equally <laughs> as, as he can not press a button. But what what's notable really is this point over over a decade after Play Misty with Me is is kind of the lack of directorial sophistication, the really unnecessary sort of voiceovers, the kind of the whole sort of oh I'm having flashbacks to Vietnam while I'm flying the plane, I've lost control of the plane. There's there's really I remember loving this film as a kid. I think I saw this film. I must have been ten, eleven when I first saw this film. And I remember thinking it was the best thing since sliced bread. And going back to going back to view it now, it's remarkable. In that, from from what I remember, it probably it, it's probably a step a, a leap back from where he started his directorial career. That kind of sums up his um, his period in the eighties in a nutshell. Uh, I get the get the feeling that both as a director and as an actor, things had run away from Eastwood a little bit, and he probably needed to take some time out to. Uh, to gather his thoughts and, and make his comeback. Yeah, uh, I can kind of see a skeleton of a pretty decent film in Firefox. I, I, just, mm. I was sure I'd seen this film before, but apparently I was thinking of the web browser, because uh, <laughs> I hadn't until a few weeks back. But, I resisted making that terrible pun, but thank you. Somebody needs to. There's, there's two quite good acts there. Now, you can... I would argue with implementation details of the way that uh, Eastwood shows his flashbacks to Vietnam is, shall we say, not subtle. <laughs> that could have been handled better, but if you do that, cut out the silly flight thought to control interface, which is completely unnecessary for the rest of the film. Yeah, and, and, necessitates, said it was, and necessitates the voiceover mumblings of, oh, how do I say fire in Russian? It's just silly. It really does hamper the last act where he's trying to do an escape, but all he can really do is narrate, I am flying away from Russia. And somehow drag that out into about, what, 20 minutes? And it is about as boring as you can think of. Um, if it had perhaps more, you know, perhaps if you had the computer graphics available today, you could have done a, a fairly you know, remarkable mm. job with a, you know, aerial combat set pieces towards the end, but <laughs> not something that was available back then. And apparently they didn't have any real budget for any great special effects because mm. there's really almost nothing of note happens at all in the end sequence. It's all basically people standing around control rooms going, he's flying north. No, he's flying south now. 
Oh, <laughs> we'd better move some missiles to the south. Oh, he's escaped. It's kind of annoying because it's, it's, it came just off the heels of a, a couple of halfway decent thrillers, like it, it, The Gauntlet in 1977 and Escape from Alcatraz in 1979 are both really solid films, um, and I watched those both again recently, um, and they still hold up fairly well. And then for him to take a stab at sort of directing something in a thriller genre, um, although it's I guess it's more of a sort of an espionage thing, and for it to be so not even lukewarm is really, really disappointing. Like you say, there's there's the skeleton of a of a decent a decent film there. If nothing else, the, the admission at the start of just the the Soviets having out uh, out engineered us on this we, oh dear, we better do something about it. Is you know refreshing uh, in mm. that kind of era. I know there's, there's obviously it's playing a bit on the uh, Sputnik space race kind of thing, but I think that that's an interesting way you could take these kind of things. Is like we are behind, we are, we are in desperate peril. We need to we need to ramp up our game by stealing this back, and that works. And a lot of the, the spy craft in the second act is relatively interesting. Mm. Again, not particularly subtle, but it's it's doing its job pretty well. It's quite effective from what it's doing. But that final act is just a uh, atrocity <laughs> and I uh, can't I mean, quite recover from that it's most notable at this point for having I'm, I think I'm correct in saying listening I wasn't really aware of the sort of mechanics of the effects uh, up until I listened to the optical podcast recently mm. who devoted um, an episode to this <laughs> and from what I gather it's, it's pretty much notable at this point only for uh, the development of a particular new optical uh, technique in the matting during the the flight sequences at the end, and other than that, it's really it's really left no kind of mark whatsoever, no footprint no. whatsoever in cinema history. Along with most of uh, the eighties output of Eastwood has largely been consigned to the memory hole. Yes, <laughs> yes, it was definitely not his strongest decade, was it? Well, listen, I I know people who swear by Heartbreak Ridge. I don't buy into it myself. Oh no, because think, that's terrible. Yes, I mean at the time, I think it was reasonably well received. But it's not held up well whatsoever. I think um, I remember liking Heartbreak Ridge when I was seven. Yes, I had no <laughs> critical faculties. Absolutely. And listen, I've got to say, rounding out—well, I say rounding out the decade—but by the time we get to 1990, um, he, he took in a beat in the year before. Pink Cadillac was like a massive, massive um, flop. White Hunter, Black Heart, sort of a vague attempt again at him trying to do something serious in a. I think probably the first, first or certainly closest thing you'd come to doing the biopic by that point. But the rookie in 1990, I just want to put it out there right now. I've got a real soft spot for. I know no one else on the planet will agree with me, but I <laughs> thought it was a massive amount of fun. Again, a film that he directed and starred in. And before we get to probably, I think the next film that we're going to talk about, it kind of for me. I know probably again, no one will, no one will agree with me on this. It kind of took those elements of all the sort of things he was taking a stab at with his films, sort of from the Iger sanction through to the Firefox, um, that sort of pot boiler thing. That sort of I found it a great deal of fun. At least he sort of ended the he ended that decade by saying, well, "Here's here's this film, which is just at least a good deal of fun, over the top nonsense that it is." But I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm glad that you enjoy it, and I guess that leads us probably into what I guess most people would describe as a near renaissance. Then, right, Unforgiven. It's strange that uh, this film should come just after a decade in which he had so many, let's be generous and say, unspectacular films. Mm. Whether perhaps he spent that decade learning lots and lots of ways to do things wrong was how he <laughs> came to finally do something so very right. But Unforgiven was Eastwood's 10th film in the genre, which made him a star, the Western. 
and it came just a couple of years after the two directors with whom he was most associated, Don Siegel and Sergio Leone, had died. You add to that the fact that the cinema western was, in 1992, pretty much dead, and it also together seems fitting that Eastwood himself would direct this tale of a dying and changing West where the gunslingers of lore passed into legend and into the pages of Pulp Fiction. And Eastwood himself plays William Money, a violent killer who found some sort of salvation in his late wife and who renounced alcohol and murder to become a pig farmer and raise his children. Unfortunately for all concerned, keeping things alive and well isn't something that Money's particularly good at. And when an opportunity arises to make some money by bounty hunting, money just can't say no. And the opportunity in question is to kill two cowboys who mutilated a prostitute. And the thousand dollar bounty has been put up by the prostitutes themselves after they felt failed by Gene Hackman's sheriff, who was considerably less interested in doling out justice and more interested in keeping his town running smoothly and just made sure instead that their pimp was recompensed for loss of business. So the setup of that film is fairly straightforward. Man needs money, man sees opportunity to get money. After that, it all goes a bit pear-shaped. As I mentioned earlier about Eastwood in his beginning days, particularly his play with for me having decided that he would go his own way, it's this film more than any other, I think, where you really begin to see the influence of Leone and Siegel in particular and the other directors he worked with. Here it's particularly uh, Don Siegel's disdain for sentimentality and Leone's deliberate masterful pacing and handling of action sequences and both are applied here expertly by Eastwood. It is like the, the 80s didn't happen to him. He, just, he got through that decade of it. Oh yes, this is how you make a film, right? And Unforgiven is like so many westerns a morality tale. But there's no space here for sentiment. It's just a study in human nature. And unlike the the Westerns in which he started, like Rawhide, it's, as Scott mentioned earlier about the, and carrying on from what I'd seen in Leone's work, it's a Western that reflects on what might have actually happened. It wasn't propaganda. It was It's far, far more reflective. And the characters here, I wouldn't say there aren't any villains, in as much as possibly there are only villains. Because along the way, it undermines many of the legends of the West. Uh, it entirely eschews any glamour. And it suggests the type of truth behind the stories that became widely disseminated through the penny dreadfuls of the day. Yeah, because in this, you've got a man who starts out redeemed and gradually the course of the film becomes unredeemed because he can't fight his own nature. And that's a large part of the point of this film. It's about human nature and there's morality here, but it's... Morality as in terms of what people would actually do as opposed to what you'd want them to do. What's particularly good about this as well as the, the strength of directing is that Eastwood on screen as well has a real power to him. We talked before about him being, you know, the gruff starry man, but he has that same incredibly strong screen presence he had in Leone's work. And perhaps here is he's so powerful because it's because he just seems so at home in the Western setting. But even though he's getting on in years, there's an a believable, almost palpable sense of menace to Eastwood's William Money as the the brutal and dangerous young gunslinger gradually emerges from the body of the old hog farmer like some sort of malevolent butterfly. And Money is like an avenging angel, ensuring that most of the people get what's coming to them, even if 
this particular angel is more of a devil in disguise. I think people make the big mistake is that people call this his, um, his career comeback and his sort of first great directorial effort, but that is to discount Bird, which I think was two or three years prior to that. Oh no, actually four years prior. So even before that, yeah. Yeah, which was sort of his passion pick at that point, a biopic of um, Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. And that was really well received and, and actually is, is, is for me the first sort of great um, directorial outing um, of his that certainly that I've, I've seen. I know that you know other, other films prior to that were certainly well received. But that for me is sort of a, a forerunner to, um, to Unforgiven. Which at this point, did we did we decide yet whether or not I'd seen Unforgiven? You have seen Unforgiven. You, you just don't seem to I remember it. I just don't seem to remember it all that well, which is peculiar. There you go for a number of reasons. <laughs> but yeah, I can't really comment on it for that reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, no, no worries, man. Yeah, I very much like it for more or less the reasons I was talking about with Leone's uh, spaghetti westerns. Whereas you could argue that was the start of the you know dirtying up of the western genre. This is kind of a logical conclusion to mm-hmm. it. To, it I mean, it almost literally starts with him face down in the dirt and basically morally doesn't go much up from there. Yeah, so it's certainly not a film that glamorises anything. There's there's no real happiness in here and that's kind of what makes it effective in the end. It's, it's showing a kind of logical conclusion to the lives that these kind of guys would have led. And, you know, things like, you know, the, the Philip Schofield kid uh, <laughs> winding up, the, you know, the way his character winds up at the end of the thing is uh, kind of somewhat more of a realistic interpretation of how you, you might things might have actually went yeah, in the, these, these eras. There's no glamour to it at all. Yeah, it's a film chock full of analogies too in, in all sorts of ways and, and sometimes in terms of the filmmaking too because it is the progression of how the Western film was made mm-hmm. as well as being the progression of the West too that the West changed and became more civilised that, that these people who had been gunslingers don't really know what to do with themselves in a more civilised West whereas you've got characters who in films at least set earlier and definitely made earlier would have would have tried to sort the problems out themselves and go and shoot people in this case, they turn to the law. Unfortunately, the law in this case is Gene Hackman's little Bill Daggett, who's who thinks he's running something in some sort of order, but is just as bad as the people he's trying to keep out. But it's all it's all to do with with you know passing of time and and changing, which is the case in a lot of more recent westerns too. That it's the the change of the world. But again, I, I think it's a, a really great film. I guess another one just holds up very well. I guess in part because it's, I suppose it's easier for Westerns to hold up because they don't, they don't look like they've aged if they've been done well no, in the first they, place. No, they tend because, to feel quite timeless. Yeah, yeah and uh, that, that does work in its favour. Again, it's very well paced. It's very well acted. It's a very effective performance from Eastwood. It's the the start of his you know grumpy old man persona. <laughs> it's obviously a sight to behold. It's good to see the genesis of that. Really do see the influence of Siegel and Leone here, and it's like clearly slanted. Not to take away from it being Eastwood's own skill that's managing this film, but you see that he's worked with these people and, and understands like the the deliberation of Leone's action pieces, and that you know his films aren't emotionless, but he has got no time for sentimentality at all. And Don Siegel never did either. Mm-hmm. But you see also just that it's weird. I mean, I know um, Craig, you see you like Bird very much, but it just which I've not seen myself. But there's just such a jump from the likes of Firefox to this. It's like, mm. you're almost like, 
was there some sort of ringer in for those other films or maybe there is for this because how can the same person have directed that that directed this and have such a short space of time between them yeah what was it that was going on in his life that there's suddenly sort of something clicked into place yeah and for the most part since Unforgiven he hasn't looked back yeah I suppose yeah in, in the years in the years following this you've got some actually some interesting work there are still pot boilers in there don't get me wrong Scott like you say he kind of he kind of introduced the sort of grumpy old man thriller you've got some some great stuff in there in the line of fire i absolutely love mm. a perfect world is a pretty decent film um despite um the albatross of kevin costner around its neck um riches of madison county was pretty well received as far as i remember well let's um, assume it's terrible though since meryl, meryl streep's in it but um. yes yes um the metal shriek absolute power is a decent enough mm-hmm. uh, political pot boiler um, certainly an order of magnitude above the stuff that he was doing previously in that kind of uh, genre. True Crime is alright, Space Cowboys I'm um, going to pretend it doesn't exist and then through to, I guess, in the early 2000s, uh, Bloodwork, which is another entirely acceptable you know, there's a pretty terse joke in there if anyone's ever seen the film entirely acceptable. In the middle of all that he directed Mystic River, which is... Oh, of course, yes yeah. Mystic yeah. River. Year after Bloodwork In the middle yeah. of that. Yeah, which again was like very well received and kind of sees, I guess, that decade more than ever sees him kind of hitting his stride again as an act, but also sort of all of a sudden this this great director has suddenly emerged after yeah, it's, um, 35 years. It's just, there's something that seems to have crystallised in them in Unforgiven, and mm. from that point it's just been like, oh, right, now I get it. There are occasional pot boilers in there. And certainly some of his other films have been a bit dull, I mean, perhaps. But do you think, I mean, it's isn't entirely to speculate, but do you think it's been some sort of realisation on his part? Because from, from what I remember, um, Unforgiven, um, and certainly what you guys have said, seems to back up. It's quite introspective. It's, it's quite inward-looking in terms of people coming to terms with who they are and, and, and what's left now. Do, do we think that... I get the impression, looking through this, this sort of stuff, that... For a long, long time, he was a guy who just didn't want to admit that he was now a certain age, and I kind of feel as if by the time we got to Bird and then, and then Unforgiven, it's almost as if I feel like maybe he's had this epiphany that suddenly, look, this is this is who I am, this is the reality of where I am and the age I'm at, and something's just sort of clicked into place, and he's decided to tackle things from that perspective rather than someone who's forever young and wants to fly imaginary fighter jets <laughs> I mean it possibly is because he actually bought the screenplay for Unforgiven about 10 years before he made it but he'd and said sat on it. You know, yeah because he said I really really like this and I want to play William Money but I need to be older and then spent a decade making terrible dirty Harry movies and Firefox uh, yeah. until he got to the point when he looked at this again and thought yes this is still brilliant I'll make it and you see how that turned out for him. I wonder if there's an element of him, as I said earlier, he, he just he was thinking very much in terms of what an audience would like. And I think perhaps there's a danger that in that stretch of the 80s, it was like, what am I known for? I'll give the people what they want. And he kind of focus grouped himself to death by providing, you know, basically what he thinks he should have been doing for an audience to go and like, like it. And mm-hmm. I think at some point he might have just went, well, maybe I'll just do what, you know, my my art tells me to, rather than what my business sense tells me to do. So that that may have something to do with it. I'm not completely sure about that. Yeah, there's only so many times I want to tell the mayor to shove this badge up his ass. Yeah, <laughs> what am I? Oh, I'm another cop on the edge. All right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am an old retired cop on the edge. <laughs> but there you go. And that takes us, I guess, through to his next his next movie for which he was nominated for Best Director at the Oscars, you know, for any given value there. Uh, and that being Million Dollar Baby. Million Dollar Baby being a boxing film and on the surface, kind of an unremarkable one. Because really, there's nothing very special about the premise of Million Dollar Baby. You have a down-and-out boxer, aren't they all in films, looking for a chance to shine in the ring and armed only with bagfuls of determination and eagerness. So this boxer latches on to a rather embittered and reluctant trainer and pins their hopes on him. And even the twist in Million Dollar Baby that the boxer in question happens to be a woman doesn't make the setup a great deal more remarkable that the trainer relents and makes the woman his protege and that she goes on to become a successful boxer makes the story seem even more ordinary. It's it's pretty much this template for how a boxing film would go. But one of the things that sets Million Dollar Baby apart from other sporting underdog stories is that at the moment of what should be her greatest triumph, the boxer in question Maggie is sucker punched and does a fall, almost cartoonish as the scene actually is, which results in a paralysis from the neck down. And at that moment, when every other boxing movie would be ending with a victory note, Million Dollar Baby almost begins again as a completely different type of film. Mm. It's, yep. a strange, it's like two films sandwiched together that have nothing to do with one another. And somehow it still works. And because the latter part of the movie deals with Maggie's paralysis, her bleak prognosis, and Frankie, who's Clint Eastwood's trainer characters, his acceptance of her death, and the part he must play in it. Because really, it, it ought not to be, and especially the boxing half of the movie, ought not to be anything special. It's very, very cliched and hackneyed and unoriginal. Yet somehow it does work. And I think that's because everything about it is done so very well. The three main actors, Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman and Hilary Swank, all put in earnest, touching and believable performances. Mm. And Eastwood's direction is so taut and assured. It's low-key and intimate and quiet, where other films in the genre would be quite bombastic. But it's the second half of the film where it really stands out, and Eastwood's direction is key. Though you really have to say a lot about his tender and vulnerable performances, Frankie, which Mm. is frankly superb. It's one of the films, I think, where more than any other, he's focused on his own acting when he's been directing, rather than focusing on the, the other characters in it. And you just see this incredible performance from Eastwood where, and performance from Eastwood directing to where all of the hallmarks of his craft are showing the deliberate pacing, the lack of sentimentality, but not lack of emotion. And you just have this character who, it sounds kind of ridiculous to say he's like the stony-faced guy with the heart of gold underneath, but you just see this person who has lost his daughter and effectively gained another one, a woman who didn't have a father who's gained one. And again, all that sounds so hallmark, lifetime TV movie. Mm. You see him gradually crack, him gradually accept this woman into his life. I think the word you used before that I that I was going to use myself was vulnerable. Mm. What What's compelling about it for me is that I haven't seen him play vulnerable before. And also it's the first time I have um, seen him properly play a father, which for someone with a career as long as this with eight kids, <laughs> I think it's the eight kids that he has. I'm sure he's got some sort of fatherly instinct. And this is the first time, it's not the first time he's played someone's father on film. 
but it's the first time he's really taken a step back and played this sort of fatherly figure. Mm-hmm. And there were shades of it a couple of years later in Gran Torino as well, actually. But yeah, with the neighbor um, kid, yeah. It's the first time that I've been generally touched by one of his performances. I think really sort of emotionally, and that he makes you and he, he makes you feel that emotionally engaged with with both his own character as an actor, but also with the character of um, Hilary Swank as a director. It's his most emotionally engaging film by some degree, and it could. Let's say it could so easily have been some sort of Sunday afternoon um, film of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, it could have really gone down like a really sort of banal, sentimental route, and it doesn't. It's quite raw. It doesn't dwell on things. His character has the courage of his, his conviction, and he, and he makes some very hard choices, obviously, without giving anything away. But um, I've, ne- I've never seen him play kind of openly vulnerable like that before, and at that sort of late stage in his career, to suddenly open that as a new avenue is like, remarkably interesting, mm-hmm. as, as much, if not more so, probably, than uh, than Unforgiven. It's certainly a film that's managed to blindside me twice now. Uh, mm-hmm. I think once I'd, I either hadn't heard or forgotten about the uh, the twist of the paralysis happening in the film. So up until then I was going, yeah, this is an acceptable enough uh, sporting underdog tale. And then that sucker punch and the rest of the film after that is such a sea change that it did manage to floor me at the time. I wasn't expecting it and it got me. It also floored me a second time because I watched this again after a run of Dirty Harry films and it's like, oh my gosh, he can actually do emotions. Mm. Certainly a, a sea change in the way that Eastwood shows himself on film as well, the, the vulnerability as well as the, the strength of the character and you know his, his open questioning of what he needs to do towards the end of that film. Yeah, it's a tremendously effective performance, very engaging. Certainly that last, whatever it is, 45 minutes or so really does sort of take the film from being something completely ordinary into something extraordinary. It is remarkable the way that it twists on that axis and uh, does provide a a hell of an emotional impact for a variety of reasons. There's a few cartoonish elements in there that I think could have been downplayed. I I mean, in particular, uh, Hilary Swank's on-film family is just cartoonishly evil. Um, Yeah, and then as is the the boxer that does her the injury yeah. too it's like yeah. because she, apparently she her whole career is you know elbowing people while the referee's not looking and she's never been you know banned for yeah. anything so yeah it, I mean, that works in pro wrestling but it's yeah, not going to do so well in Boston yeah, boxing. there's a few things in there that is what would make it seem so unremarkable and, but sort of in rather in spite of those flaws it seems to work very very well because everything else is just handled so well this is a this makes a really great double bill with Gran Torino I've double billed that, and that's that's a really nice one too. And those two films pretty pretty well encapsulate the the noughties for him. Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. A lot of people see as missteps, but I think it's an interesting. I think they're interesting directorial asides, and I think it is nice to see him try and do something different again. This is clearly a period in the sort of early to mid two thousands where he's he's decided to open up a different a different avenue and take a different approach. And experiment with different things, and I think they're worth. I know people aren't as fond of Flags of Our Fathers as they are probably Letters from Iwo Jima, um, and even as a whole, those the two films um, they're not considered the greatest, but they're they're interesting and notable in terms of you know a change a change of direction. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. I mean, Flags of Our Fathers, it's an interesting premise. The film's very boring. Letters from Iwo Jima, for him being such a staunch Republican, to it's it's perhaps surprising, but Letters mm. from Iwo Jima isn't the best film but it's so interesting that he's looking at this conflict from the point of view of the Japanese uh, yeah. so he is very much trying other things there which is great one might not agree with his political leanings by and large but it seems to indicate that at least 
he is capable of taking on board <laughs> the perspective of the other side mm-hmm. and that perhaps that he has come to those conclusions, you know, as an informed decision, yeah. whether or not you agree with him. So, I mean, he's, his run from Unforgiven, it's not without missteps, but it's been pretty solid. Although perhaps it's been a bit like the whole, as you mentioned earlier, Craig, the whole even-numbered Star Trek thing, because he did, um, after Mystic River Million Dollar Baby, he did seem to do a bit of a good one, bad one run. So mm-hmm. he went on to do Changeling, which was terrible. <laughs> then Gran Torino Invictus. And Invictus is again, another sporting underdog story, but just done extremely competently with an added interest in the Nelson Mandela character. Gran Torino's great. Then you have Hereafter, which is abysmal. <laughs> yes, I've, I've, I've avoided that after you guys reviewed it in our previous podcasting yes. incarnation. J. Edgar, which I still haven't got around to seeing, actually. Uh, Jersey Boys, which Scott actually liked quite a bit, didn't you, Scott? Yes, it's a perfectly ordinary biopic. It's sort of halfway between a biopic and musical, but it's interesting. It's inoffensive. It's not really doing anything out of the ordinary, but it's certainly an enjoyable watch. It's not redefining anything, but yes, it's perfectly adequate for what it does. And, uh, well, doing a bit of a disservice. It's an enjoyable film, if you've even the vaguest interest in the, in the subject matter, and it's definitely worth a, worth a look. So, also, we're talking mostly here about the films he's directed. He has still acted in a few along the way. He's directed himself in Gran Torino, etc. But he's also popped up in things like Trouble with the Curve, which is unremarkable, but entirely enjoyable. I think that was after his fourth announcement of his retirement from acting. Mm-hmm. I think we're on four now. Could be more. He didn't seem to want to give up, but his work has, I wouldn't say progressed so much because I don't think he's topped the likes of Million Dollar Baby and Unforgiven. There's nothing been quite so good as that. Grand Tune is probably the closest thing to it. But he's kept up a pretty solid standard since then, with the occasional dip into terrible, terrible things like Hereafter. But then we have, as a director, his most recent film from last year, American Sniper, which is, for many reasons, perhaps one of the more controversial things he's covered. Yeah, American Sniper I had mixed feelings about. I wouldn't go so far as to say I didn't enjoy it. I think it was a reasonably enjoyable film. It kind of sees his sees elements of his political standpoint creeping back in. It's I think I described it in my offhand Twitter review as Bradley Cooper's big Murrican propaganda gun shoots to the right or something like that. I want I want to say that almost kind of detracts from it. I think more than anything it suffers from still being too close to the subject matter. And I think that maybe if this were a film made 10 years from now, if this conflict that we see (laughs) carrying on in the Middle East actually comes to some sort of conclusion, I think it's a film that would have been better served by having a little bit more distance between subject matter and production. Um, I mean, as it stands, Bradley Cooper plays, um, who also produces, I think, plays the role of Chris Kyle in this biopic of the US Navy SEAL uh, sniper, who is or was famous for having, I think, the most documented kills on on record and his career from I think it was sort of, I've completely forgotten what did he have did he grow up in some sort of small holding or oh no he was um he was rodeo guy a rodeo cowboy yes um, all I could think of was rodeo clown I like it definitely was rodeo that. clown <laughs> he was a rodeo clown I ran away from the circus and he joined the military <laughs> so that he could go and see the world yeah, so he he worked in rodeos and then after the uh, attacks on New York, uh, 9-11, decided to 
sign up in service country um, by going on to uh, fight in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, he showed a certain proclivity for his marksmanship and became a sniper within the Navy SEALs and went on to shoot a lot of people, um, somewhat <laughs> controversially, including children. Yes. Which a great deal is, of, is made about in this film, and I think in the context of that conflict, even though the film portrays it very disingenuously, certainly in terms of what Kyle himself had written in his novel, sorry, his own biography, the film goes to great pains to lay these sort of difficult moral choices that Kyle had to make in his role as a soldier to lay them out in front of us as though it intends to actually tackle them um, and analyse them in any way. And then with a shrug of the shoulders, Kyle simply moves on and nothing more is really made of them. It also fails kind of in cat and mouse element of there is also a sort of subplot of a sniper from the other side who happened to have been a former Olympic athlete from what I can gather who made it his mission to try and remove Kyle from the picture. So there's kind of an enemy at the gates, Vasily Zaitsev um, thing going on there as well. And it doesn't really handle that all that well either. That's almost by the by. It is the film's absolute failure to tackle, to investigate and to shed any sort of insight on the thought processes, the ethics of some of the choices that these people are the situations that these people are placed in on a daily basis. There's a fantastic movie to be made there, and certainly it's something I hadn't necessarily seen tackled, if at all, then certainly all that well by other films, and I was quite intrigued as to how American Sniper would would go about it, and the answer is it simply doesn't, and it's a huge missed opportunity. It's not a terrible movie. It's still a reasonably good film. It could probably do with being a little bit shorter. It's just, it seems like an odd misstep, and certainly I don't feel deserved to be quite so award considered as it was uh, last year um, in the various sort of award ceremonies um, mm-hmm. but I mean still interesting in certain respects, not as greatest directorial endeavour I think what's going to be interesting to see is what he does now is this going to be just a misstep and is he going to pull something interesting out of the bag with his next movie or is this going to signal a sort of a st- another another trip down the slippery slope of self-indulgence that he's he's fallen uh, victim to before. The only thing I've found particularly remarkable in American Sniper is how it seems to be made purely to have people project their own politics onto it. Because mm. you can read this as anti-war, you could read this as pro-war, there's lots of ways you can uh, fit your own narrative onto it, but it's been designed almost with that in mind so that it doesn't have any of its own narrative. Mm. Uh, that's kind of why, you know, Kyle's such a blank slate. He doesn't make any attempt at uh, coming to any sort of rationalisation behind these decisions. It's it's a bit disappointing in that respect because I can kind of see where it's going. I mean, if you are a soldier, you do not want your snipers questioning orders. So if you're ordered to kill a kid, then that is what you should be doing as a good soldier. Uh, you're not really supposed to be questioning that order, <laughs> at least in terms of you know battlefield uh, effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Probably wouldn't stand up at the Hague, but no. well, the only int- the interesting thing about that scenario though is that he's not ordered to do it. They basically back off from it and say, "Well, it's your call." Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but and we see what that call is. But there's, I just found the central character to be such a blank slate and so motionless. He has no real reaction to any of the things he's doing. He's mm. just he just feels like he's doing a job. He may as well be, you know, hammering nails into a bit of wood. No, he may as well point. be the gun. For the all the emotion yeah. that he shows, <laughs> <laughs> and 
because because of that, the whole thing just felt incredibly Bravo. flat to me. I couldn't be really be bothered projecting any politics onto it. So my, mm. my feelings on this is are largely null. It's it's there, but it didn't really do anything for me one way or another. I was not engaged with it enough to really start thinking about what it was presenting by itself. It's been claimed that it's, you know, it's shown what happens to you know, the, the people left behind in war and all these kind of things, and I don't think it does a, a, any sort of job of that at all. If you want something that's a bit more th- effective that way, go and see The Hurt Locker or something mm-hmm. like that, uh, which is, does a far better job of showing what's to do into its subjects. This film is just an excuse to, to start putting your own politics onto it, and I'm not really interested in that kind of argument. As a film itself, I don't think it holds a lot of water, and it was not particularly interesting and really any regard for me. The, 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 the deepest analysis of the scenarios that he finds himself in is basically for him to step back after each one and say, well, only God can judge me. I'm, I'm willing to have that discussion with him when I meet my maker. And just to have that whole, to have that fantastic Christian standpoint of, yeah, murder's, murder's all right in this circumstance yeah. uh, or whatever. It's, it's not all that interesting to me, um, especially when it's just this mantra that gets repeated over and over and over. Um, it forced me to disengage from from the character of Kyle, at least as he was portrayed on screen. And the kicker of it is, is that actually, and it's not a plot spoiler because uh, you know it's it was it's it's a news story um, that that Chris Kyle was himself killed shortly after coming home by a former colleague of his who was suffering from post traumatic stress disorder when he was trying to help the guy chill out about a firing range. Top tip, chill out somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, and actually shortly before that happened, I remember listening to an interview with the guy on Radio 4, and he actually was a fairly engaging character with something to say. I haven't read his biography, his autobiography, but I kind of want to, to see just how much of a hash this film made and actually what might have been. Yeah, that's, I mean, basically this film, the politics were very much not mine, but I think I'm largely with Scott and- there certainly wasn't enough interesting there for me to really be bothered one way or the other. And it comes up with some sort of stuff. It's like the way they go on. It's like, oh, these people are the enemy. They're, they're, they're monsters. They're butchers. We must kill them. It's like, okay, that that's just an interesting starting point. Where are you going? Oh, you're not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll There's no analysis whatsoever. And it's not even that it's asking you to draw your own conclusion because it doesn't really give you enough material to work with. No. Here's a scenario. Here's the decision I made. Here's how that ended. See, it's a there bit of a, a wasted opportunity, American Sniper, really, because th- there were so many interesting angles that I could have taken about, you know, how war affects people who are mm. waging it, how people are detached from the decisions that are made, and how the propaganda I, makes people believe that these people are bad or something or different, and it just didn't explore any of them. I wonder that it was only ever going to be that way, though, because the logical conclusion of any kind of analysis into those scenarios is going to be something that an American cinema, cinema audience is going to rail against. The people who you'd imagine this film being targeted at probably aren't going to like being confronted by the truths of the situation yeah. and having too much of a mirror held up to their... Yeah. Uh, Certainly while the situation is still going on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If this was a film about a sniper in Vietnam, it might have had an opportunity to be a bit more uh, yeah. reflective on this thing. Exactly. I think there's a better film to be made of this ten years from now. Um, you know, <laughs> peace willing. <laughs> Does anyone have a particular favourite directorial or, or acting gig from Eastwood along the way? Ooh, interest. I think... Oof, I, I don't know actually. I think actually Gran Torino. Hmm. I mean, I wouldn't argue that it's his best acting or directing performance, but I just find Gran Torino very, very compelling. Very watchable film. He's 
it's quite a sympathetic card, quite interesting, but also believable. I think Gran Torino latterly has been as a as a real favourite. I mean, I've obviously expressed previously my uh, foolish and misguided love of the rookie um, <laughs> as a ridiculous piece of disposable entertainment. But I would also suggest that in the line of fire is is a real personal favourite of mine. Not one that we really touched on, but it's a film that holds up remarkably well even now. Um, and I find myself going back to again and again. And I. I cannot wait to talk about the Iger sanction. <laughs> I cannot wait. It's an absolute favourite for for an entirely different set of reasons. I um, could wait. Yeah, <laughs> have you, did you watch it yet, Drew? I have watched it. Um, <laughs> yes, I could wait. It's <laughs> all I'll say about that. <laughs> love it. I absolutely love it. I'm so looking forward to that gig. But yeah, what about you, Scott? Well, I think in general, I did end on something of a downer with some of using American Sniper there, but I think in, in general, Clint Eastwood has been a tremendous positive force for films. He's, the good that he has done has outweighed the, not necessarily bad, even when he's bad, it's more that it's forgettable mm-hmm. rather than it's you know, actively terrible. So uh, he's had a, a very storied and a great career. I think my favourites are probably still going to come back to uh, ooh, yeah, a toss-up between Unforgiven and uh, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly was certainly one I would consider for one of my favourites. Um, but yeah, he's there's a lot. He's been a very prolific actor and director, and there's an awful lot there you can choose from. It's very, very good. Yeah, well, it has its flaws. Dirty Harry is still tremendously enjoyable, mm-hmm. um, and while it's you know clearly aged, it doesn't feel that it's dated somehow. That genotype that it maybe not invented, but certainly popularised throughout the decades to come, sort of holds up pretty well, and I think it's a it's a strong performance too. I, I think that's probably it for our thoughts on Clint Eastwood for this episode. As you can I see, we're, so. we're rather fond of the majority of, or rather a lot of his work. Um, yeah, careful now. <laughs> majority is the wrong word. Sorry. Yes, um, <laughs> I'm just remembering here after again. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed that discussion. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us on Twitter at FudsOnFilm or on Facebook at FudsOnFilm. You can email us at podcast at FudsOnFilm. Uh, we're always looking to hear from people who listen to the to the show. Let us know what you think, what you think we could improve, whether you agree with our thoughts or not. We're looking for some healthy discussion. But until the next time, when we will be covering old men action movies, I have been Drew. Scott has been Scott. Ta-da. And Craig has been Craig. Fairly well. 